0: Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, This shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code LINDSAY, L-Y-N-Z-Y, For 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Hello, everyone. Today's conversation is with Susie Hargreaves. Susie joined the Internet Watch Foundation in September 2011 as chief executive. She has worked in the charity sector for more than 30 years in a range of senior positions. Susie was made an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honors in 2016 for services to child online safety. Susie sits on a number of boards and groups to do with online child safety and protection. She was a finalist for a European Woman of Achievement Award, PA Magazine's Best Boss of 2014, Executive of the Year 2017 in the ISPA Awards, and a finalist in the European CEO Awards 2018. In today's episode, Susie and I talk about what the Internet Watch Foundation is and does, the incidence of child sexual abuse online, how predators are able to target and groom children, findings in the Internet Watch Foundation's recent annual report, and what you can do to help protect your children and prepare them for the dangers on the internet. Just as a disclaimer, today's episode will discuss child sexual abuse please turn off this episode and listen to a different one if this is something that you may struggle with or do not want to hear. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All right, everyone. Today, we have Susie Hargreaves. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me to speak to you today, Lindsay. Yes. Yeah, so as we were discussing, today's topic is a really, really important one to address. And for those that might not be comfortable with this topic, we will be addressing child sexual abuse. So if this is something that you do not want to listen to at this time, please, please, please uh, press pause and maybe listen to a different episode because we will be talking about that during today's episode. So Susie, can you start with just talking to us about what made you start working for for Internet Watch Foundation and just kind of explaining what it is that um, Internet Watch Watch Foundation does.
1: Yes, thank you. So I've been at the Internet Watch Foundation, which we call the IWF, for 12 years. I joined the organisation after working with a number of not-for-profit organisations, not particularly in this area, but for the same reason that pretty much everybody who works for us joined, which was we'd kind of reached a point in our lives where we wanted to do something where we felt we could make a difference and do something tangible. And we were concerned about uh, child sexual abuse. I was interested in the internet and it felt like a job where I could really take my skills from other jobs that they were transferable and actually work in an area where I could make a difference. So in terms of what the IWF does, uh, we're based in the UK. We're an international hotline for the reporting and removing of online child sexual abuse. We've been going for 26 years and we're funded predominantly by the internet industry, who we work very closely with, But we also work incredibly closely with law enforcement and government. And our job is to go after child sexual abuse on the Internet and take it down. So in very, very simplistic terms, the job of the police and law enforcement is to go after the bad guys. And our job is to take the content down from the Internet. And we do some work in between where we help identify victims and we do support for each other in that area. Very interesting. So I I do have a question for you. So
0: I find what I worry about the most is that there's almost this disconnection between finding that content and then trying to figure out where it came from and who put it up onto the internet. Is that something that you have found in in your work that, that it's oftentimes hard to connect who's actually putting up this content?
1: Yeah, it's it is a complex picture. I mean, so you can have the child will be abused in one country where that image is recorded it will be hosted. So that's where the internet actually sort of connects it to the internet. It'll be hosted in another country, and then it will be watched in many countries around the world. So, you know, our role is to find out where it's hosted and then get it removed. Because the best way for this to be removed, well, first, the best way is for it not to happen in the first place. But Once it's happened, the crime has already been committed. Our job is to go out there and try and get this content removed as quickly as possible because every single time somebody looks at that image or video, that child is re-victimized. And we know from talking to many survivors that images can be viewed thousands and thousands of times. Hmm.
0: Now, can you explain to everyone what tech-enabled
1: or self-generated child sexual abuse material is? Of course, yes. So when I started working at the IWF, the content we used to see, you'd see a perpetrator in the room and they would be abusing the child and then that would be videoed and then it would be shared on the internet. And then about uh, 10 years ago, we started seeing a new Sort of thing happening. And this was children in their bedrooms and domestic settings where they've got a camera enabled device and an internet connection where the perpetrator is not in the room with them but they are sort of tricking and coercing and encouraging them to engage in sexual acts. So we have seen in one side of the interaction. So the child is then recorded and then that makes its way onto child sexual abuse websites. And that now accounts for about 75% of all the content we remove. The thing to remember is whilst we call it self-generated content, we're not very happy with that expression because it almost implies that the child is to blame for their abuse. And these children are very young. I mean, the majority of the children we see in self-generated content are girls aged 11 to 13. Although the fastest growing group is seven to 10-year-olds. And clearly, children at that age are not emotionally or physically mature enough to understand what is happening. And they are easy pickings for perpetrators. Oh my goodness. So I love that you kind of broke down age ranges and all
0: of that. And I know that the Internet Watch Foundation recently produced its recent annual report. Can you go into some more of the statistics of how often is this happening compared to a few years ago? Where is it happening the most? Just some of the the most common statistics.
1: Well, child sexual abuse content happens across the world and nobody knows exactly how many images there are out there. But what we do know is a huge number of these images are duplicates. And we also know that new images are created every day and then shared on the Internet. Uh, Many years ago, we just had to go after these images one at a time and just remove them, play whack-a-mole with it. But in recent years, we've been able to use uh, technology. So, we've been able to hash, put a digital fingerprint on known images and then use those hashes to go and search for the duplicates and get them removed. And we used all sorts of technology to do that. Now, in terms of the scale of the issue, unfortunately, it is getting bigger and bigger. I mean, we currently have... 1.8 million unique images of child sexual abuse on our hash list and other partners around the world also have their hash lists too and that grows every day but in terms of what we've seen the big trends are we have removed more and more content year on year so last year we had it's not a great thing to say but another record year where we removed 255,000 web pages of child sexual abuse And every web page can have from one to thousands of images on. So that equates to the removal of millions and millions of images. And the the sort of big trends we saw last year was this huge increase in self-generated content. And since 2019, we've seen a thousand percent increase in the amount of seven to ten-year-olds. And last year, last year we removed more of what we call Category A material, which is in the UK, we assess it according to UK law, and it's categorised. And I won't go into the details of what the categories are broken down into, but you just need to know that Category A is the worst level of abuse. And we saw a doubling of Category A abuse, and particularly the younger the child the worst the level of abuse so the in the not to 2 age group 81% of what we removed was category a so in terms of trends what we're seeing is more and more content and more and more ways for people to share it and unfortunately the children getting younger but it, it's not all bad news and i think this is what's really important to mention is that at the same reason as we've seen more content we also have better ways of finding it so there's it's not just that there's more out there there's the counter to that which is our technology is better our partnership approach is better industry is better at actually finding and removing this content so it's a double-edged story really So do you think that because your
0: technology is getting better and better that perhaps all of this content could have been out there prior and actually it might not actually be increasing as much as we think only because technology has been able to keep up to find this content?
1: Well, I think that's a great question, Lindsay. I mean, the truth is we don't know. Um, I don't think child sexual abuse is a new phenomenon. And, you know, people say to me, well, it's been around since the start of time. And I think, well, it has certainly been around for a long time. And certainly in Europe, if you, if that's what you were interested in, you would, might have had to go to, you know, the Netherlands or somewhere and go to a shop and buy it. But, you know, what the internet did was it suddenly this sort of, astronomical rise and ease of access to this material so what we have is an internet which enables people to access this content in one or two clicks so People will share the content and unfortunately, they will also look for more and more extreme content. So there will be forums and places where you have to share content to get into those forums. So there is a kind of really, really sort of malevolent, dark side to certain people on the internet who will be constantly looking for new content and new ways of sharing it. But hopefully, as you say, a counter to that is that we can use the technology to try and do something about it. And a great example of that is we're partners in the UK with law enforcement on the National Child Abuse Image Database where we, we these are images where the police will go into someone's house, seize a laptop, and then they will capture forensically the uh, images on that laptop. And what we're able to do with that is hash though, so put a digital fingerprint on them, share that with industry, and often those images won't have even got onto the internet, so by doing that, we will stop them going on in the first place, so try and stop them before they're shared, so again, you know using technology in a positive way
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, so how are Predators online. Let's talk
0: a little bit more about this because I know people listening are probably all their bells are ringing and going off. And let's talk about how these predators are able to target and groom children.
1: The reality is that by the time we see the videos, they have been moved from their original source. So they've been harvested and they've made their way from child sexual abuse. Uh, so, we made their way onto child sexual abuse websites. So, we don't see the original interaction, but we can, we know from the images and videos that we see that, you know, that, those original images and videos are sourced from a number of platforms. And what happens is you've got children online on different social media platforms, on lots of different platforms. They're online 24-7. So perpetrators will just go out there and just start conversations, you know, and might start conversations with 100 children. And if one lands, you know, they get lucky and then they move on to this horrible abuse of that child. So What they will do, and we see children on a lot of the self-generated content images and videos, see the videos where the children will be in the bedrooms and they're obviously looking down at the laptop and they're speaking and they're saying things like, I'm going to wait until I get 100 likes or I'm going to, you know, I need more people to come online. So these children are on interactive platforms to begin with and people will just try their luck, I'm afraid, and then they will get lucky at some of the Mm -hmm. time.
0: Do you have any information on like the most common websites or apps that children might be using that tend to target children in this way?
1: Well, we don't see the original platform and often by the time we see the video, any sort of identifying characteristics have been edited out. Also, Mm -hmm. there is the phenomena of, you know, sort of breadcrumbing where, where kids' children will be taken from one site to another and moved around so that the abuse will happen over a number of sites. But what we know is that basically any site where a child is able to interact with an adult, they're potentially at risk. Now, because if you don't know who you're talking to online, that's, that's problematic, isn't it? So, you know, one of the things we would say to people is the message shouldn't be it's this platform or it's that platform. The message should be, actually, there are rules and etiquettes and ways in which you can keep children safe online. So we need to understand what those platforms are. Children shouldn't be on them if they're under a 13, in some cases, 16. And, you know, to, for parents to really understand what their children are doing online. So I think that the lesson that we want to get out is really that we need to find ways to help build children's resilience, help support parents and carers. But rather than saying, go to this platform or don't go to that platform, it could happen mm-hmm. across any platform.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Have you seen any stark differences between areas of the world or countries where some of this might originate from? Or is it kind of just widespread?
1: I think, you know, that there's certain aspects of child sexual abuse that are particularly horrible, like live streaming, where people are paying to have children abused on demand. And they tend to be in many, you know, in the Philippines and other countries like that, where it's, it's sort of linked to the economy and poverty. But obviously, when we've seen children and particularly ones in self-generated content you know what i would say is it crosses every strata of society the kids could be anywhere in the world a lot of the children we're seeing are mainly in in the western world and it can affect any children you know it can affect them all so on the same time as no one is safe they also all children can be safe so i think we just Mm -hmm. need to get that message across Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So what policies do we have currently in place or what do you think should be in place to help protect children more?
1: You know, we have in the UK, we have regulation coming in. The social media platforms and the main platforms will be legally obliged to ensure that their platforms are kept safe and that children are they've got to prove But they've got to be transparent, got to prove that they're doing everything they can to keep their platforms clear of child sexual abuse, that children aren't online when they're very, very young, etc. So I think there are lots of things we can do. And I think we work closely with the Internet industry and they do a lot. They take a lot of our technical tools and they work with us to develop bespoke technical tools. But they also, you know, can do more. All of us can do more because, you know, when we've got children online who are 10 years old unsupervised, then there is a quite an easy way to stop that really, which is to make sure that people understand the risks of being online, that parents and carers have the tools to to understand what their children are doing online and that the children themselves are educated. So, you know, I think it's a, you know, I would say that the way to deal with this is we need a three-pillared approach. The first is that to have proper legislation so we know exactly what is legal and illegal backed up by law enforcement resource. The second is to have proper education and awareness. So it can't, you know, people need to understand and it needs to be constant now to ensure that people understand the risks of being online. And the third is using technology. So all of us have got a responsibility to do everything we can to keep children safe online. It's not just a one, one silver bullet solution, I'm afraid. It's a multitude of actions to keep children safe online.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about legislation and I don't know how the EU kind of compares to the US. I know I keep hearing little bits and pieces of certain countries putting some sort of a limitation from the tech industry standpoint on what age they can start using certain apps or using certain technologies. But for the most part, I think everything there is roughly the same as it is over in the US. Is that correct? as far as like in basic, it's a parent led.
1: Sure. I mean, to the extent that, so we have very tough legislation on child sexual abuse. So we have one of the best records in the world in terms of not hosting it in the UK because we have a zero tolerance approach and we have an exceptional partnership between the police ourselves and the government. And we also work really well with international partners like the national center for exploited and missing children in the States. And when it comes to the legislation, And in terms of the age verification for children, because the majority of the platforms that we're talking about are American. So, you know, they are kind of depend on US legislation, the Communications Act in the States, COPPA, you know, that that legislation which says that children shouldn't be under 13, and then certainly under 16 on a number of platforms. So, you know, in a way, because they are worldwide companies, but they're also American companies. So they kind of lead the way in terms of what can happen in terms of keeping children safe online. This
0: podcast episode is brought to you by Earth Breeze. Now is the time to do away with those big and bulky laundry detergent jugs they're heavy and convenient. And 91% of them end up in landfills and oceans, which can harm our planet and our oceans. One of the best things we did recently was to switch over to earth breeze laundry detergent sheets. And I'm excited to tell you that they work great. Even on tough stains, they arrive at your doorstep in a small box that looks like a box of dryer sheets. Each sheet is a liquidless laundry detergent that dissolves 100% in any wash cycle. Just toss that sheet in with your laundry and you're good to go. No mess with the liquid detergent. My favorite part is that it makes it much easier for our kids to help do their own laundry. They can throw their laundry in with a sheet and voila. I will say that I was slightly hesitant at first due to my daughter's sensitive skin, but I'm here to tell you that Earth Breeze is great for all laundry lifestyles. These sheets are hypoallergenic and dermatologist tested, so you don't need to worry about it affecting anyone's skin when you switch over. Earth Breeze is compatible with high efficiency washers, gray water systems, and septic safe for those of you with a septic system like us. You can set up a flexible subscription that is easily adjustable and can be paused or canceled at any time. I love that we no longer have to buy those large plastic jugs that take up space in our laundry room, and this makes it much easier for our kids to help as well. This is just another way to help our environment, which is so incredibly important right now. Try EarthBreeze risk-free. They will give you a full refund if you are not satisfied with the product. No questions asked. Switch from the old-fashioned goo to something new. Right now, my listeners can subscribe to Earth Breeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y to get started. That's earthbreeze.com slash Lindsay for 40% off. Earthbreeze.com slash Lindsay. Yeah, it's interesting. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this. The governor of Utah recently signed some social media legislation, and I believe it's with platforms such as TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram, and it would require, or it does require, parental permissions for anyone under the age of 18 to use those specific platforms. And the parents would have to okay their usage. And... I've heard so many different takes on this, and I feel like it's broken 50-50 as far as who is in support of this and who is not. And you have, of course, the group of people who believe that they should be in charge of everything that their children do, and they don't need legislation that would help regulate that. And then, of course, you have those in the camp of, thank goodness someone's doing something and... You know, I can of course change that rule if I think it needs to be changed because all the adult has to do is kind of say, okay, my child can use this. But now there's something in place as this sort of barrier because some kids don't have, you know, caregivers and parents that are incredibly involved. And this helps protect those people. And I'd just love to hear more on what you think about all of that and your thoughts.
1: Well, it, it won't surprise you to, to hear that I think there should be regulation and controls in place. I don't under, you, know, you can't get in the car and drive unless you're 17 in this country. You can't go and buy alcohol unless you're 18. I think, you know, one of the things I'm very much supporting with the online safety bill, the regulation in this country, is that we'll have proper age verification for children to access adult sites, to access adult pornography, because that's, that's clearly had a huge impact on how children perceive relationships. And, you know, so that, that's extremely worrying. But obviously, I think there are really important reasons why children shouldn't be on social media platforms when they're 10 years old, and certainly shouldn't be unsupervised. And at the moment, there is no way of, that there, there will be, have to be, But there is no way of knowing that a child is 10 years old. And the pressure on kids now is so massive to pretend they're older, you know, especially like young girls. You know, I see, you know, I see these girls in self-generated images and they they're so vulnerable. They think they're grown up and they're so open to flattery and being told they're pretty and they should be a model. And grown up people do this, that and the other And, you know, your heart breaks when you see these little kids. And the truth is the parents, what we see is often parents clearly have no idea what children are doing in their bedrooms and they think they're safe because they're in the house. So I think we do need regulation and we do need accountability from the companies. But we also need good parental guidance and parental controls. But I would also say that there is a, you know, this argument that it's up to the parents and that the parents should do everything. I, I, yeah, of course, I'm a parent. I take responsibility for my children. But that's all very well for the highly motivated parents. But there are some parents who need help or some children who are looked after by carers or siblings or whatever. And actually, we need to attack it not just from that standpoint, but for maybe those children in the most vulnerable groups, where perhaps they haven't got a parent looking over their shoulder saying you shouldn't be on this site or you shouldn't be on that site. But actually, education, schools, government, police, all of us have got to take a responsibility to keep our kids safe online.
0: Yeah, I I agree with so much of what you said. And I think it's so difficult because I do feel that All of this is moving at such a lightning pace that we are just now, there's been some recent studies coming out that say, hey, listen, the earlier a child uses a phone and social media and all of these things, the worse off their mental health is as they become adults. And we are finding that out now. But of course, we've already had a generation kind of using phones and doing this whole thing for for many years now. And it's like we have to kind of catch up to it all. And I do wonder what will happen down the road as far as legislation goes, because I do agree I'm on the same page with you that same as having these responsibilities of driving a car and, and drinking alcohol and doing these other things, using the internet has some significant and serious repercussions if not used properly. And when you were also talking about teaching these children what they need to know to be safe online, I think that a great idea would be to implement some sort of a program into schools, just like we do. For many different things, as far as teaching them about sex ed, kind of weaving in this how do I use the internet safely and teaching that to them throughout elementary all the way up through high school and just saying, listen, these are the things that can happen, age appropriately, telling them what can happen all the way through so that they are aware of these things. Because not every parent, like you had mentioned, is extremely involved and will talk to their children about these types of things. It's just not going to happen. So just to make sure that every child is on the same page and understands what they're getting into when they do use the internet is is so important. You mentioned many times, you know, what you see, and I'm sure there's just, I'm, so grateful that you're willing to do this work because I can't imagine how it has affected you and many others, just your mental health and just having to think through these things. What do analysts do at Internet Watch Foundation to kind of cope with the viewing of these this abusive material every day?
1: Well, that's really important to us that we support and look after our staff. We've got about 30 analysts. And what happens is that when start start working with us we go through a very sort of rigorous recruitment process so they have a normal interview but they also have a psychological interview profiling and we've kind of talked to them about what their kind of coping strategies are at home and mechanisms and sort of attitudes. And, you know, so they get a sense of it's a bit more than a normal job. And then after they've gone through that, we then give them an image viewing session so they can see. We take them through the images. Our hotline director does that. And then they get an opportunity to talk to one of our counsellors and decide if it's for them. We used to have people fall out at that stage, but we haven't recently, which is, is quite interesting. But once we then work with us, they have a six month training program. They have monthly mandatory counselling and have an annual psychological assessment as well with a clinical psychologist and then we also have lots of we have try and keep them well looked after at work we have a nice breakout room with ping pong table and you know they have sort of tvs and video games and they have lots of breaks they never work overtime and they do a lot of sort of mentoring support like they currently are analysts they're given they're given their own budget for something which are they spend it on head massages at the moment and they do loads of i don't know if you have this in the states but we have the great british bake-off do you have an equivalent of that in in the states
0: i don't know but i have heard so many people mention that show specifically saying how much they love how much they love it i don't know if we have an equivalent here though
1: well we have everyone's crazy about baking cakes in the uk so they do bake-off all the time we had last Last weekend was the Eurovision Song Contest. So we had a sweepstake. for the, you know, so they do all sorts of things to do kind of lots of sort of breakout things. Anybody who sees images has to have counseling, has to be, have an annual psychological assessment. And I think, you know, we're really, really proud of this because, you know, we have, you know, touch wood, we've not had uh, any particular issues in terms of our analysts. And, you know, we, we really worry about them and we encourage them to take breaks and to talk about stuff. The truth is that everyone will see stuff that will, for, for some reason, one image or another image will really impact on you. It's not even, it might remind you of someone you know, or it might it just might be out of the blue or something that just upsets you because they're just normal people. And our hotline director always says they are just ordinary people doing an extraordinary job and i think that's true and the the and i also say to people you know context is everything because they're not seeing child sexual abuse like they're not encountering it at home or whatever they do they're seeing it in a very controlled environment where they know what they're doing and every so often they help identify a child and that child gets rescued and you know that that's that's what makes it worthwhile Or you meet a a survivor, he says, you know, thank God you're out there taking our images down. That's what it's all about, really. So it's a very satisfying job in a way because they will all say, you know, you you go home every night and you you really do know you've made a difference. So I think um, quite a unique thing to experience, really. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Do you think that there will be, I know you said right now, it's basically all these analysts are doing everything by hand. Do you think in the future that this could be replaced by like AI finding these images and being able to to take them down so that there doesn't need to be a human involved? Well, I, mean, I don't yeah. know if you know that from a tech
1: standpoint, but. Yeah, I mean, they did, when, I, when I say they do everything by hand, I mean, we use technology from, you know, to massively triage and support the process and they're all using technology all the time and looking for ways to you know, speed the process up. And it will get better and better, and that will really help us. For instance, since we've had our hash list, so this list of unique uh, digital fingerprints, when we get reports from the public, uh, prior to the analyst looking at every single one, which they used to have to, it's run through our hash list. So if it's a duplicate, our analyst doesn't have to look at it. So we've been able to reduce the amount of content that they look at, and and, and then and also improve efficiency at the same time so they can focus on reports where we know we have to look at it because the public sends in reports and uh, we have to open them up and look at them because we need to know they need to be assessed. And then if there are child sexual abuse images, the analysts then apply up to 28 tags onto each image before they hash it so we can then share them that will that aligns to different legislation in different countries so that we can then share them internationally
0: excellent yeah that would be amazing
1: okay i know that everybody wants to
0: know what can they do because everyone feels pretty helpless about this so what can parents or carers do to help prepare their children for dangers on the internet
1: okay we've talked about a lot of very serious stuff so far. And uh, and one thing I do want to say before I even start saying what you can do is the internet is not inherently bad. The internet is good. And the internet was a, it was created to help people around the world. And if just think about when we went into lockdown, that actually children, relied on the internet for their education, for their communication, for their entertainment, for their networking, everything. So let's, you know, remember that it's fundamentally good, but there is this really dark side and we can really protect our children to make sure that they're kept safe online. So the first thing we would say to all parents and carers is do not panic okay even if you think your kids know their way around the internet a lot better than you which they probably do don't panic because you can learn and you can find ways to support them so the first thing is we found that the the research we did on self-generated content in this country is that one meaningful conversation can make all the difference so don't don't stop talking to your children you know it's difficult but actually sometimes you have to have difficult conversations with your children and actually, we also put in place a really simple checklist for parents called TALK, T-A-L-K. And the T stands for start talking to your children. So sort of generate an interest in what they're doing online. The second is to agree the rules for the family and the whole family should stick by them. So if the family rule is that people you know shouldn't be on the internet for 10 hours a day then everybody should be sticking up there to it the l stands for learn more about the platforms that your children are on so talk to your children ask them which platforms they go on which ones they like and the k stands for you know know how to set safety settings and you can do this really easily we've got other checklists on our website iwf.org.uk and for each of them there's guidelines and ways to do all of those. So all of the big platforms have safety settings you can set and there are lots of ways in which you can find out, you know, how to keep your children safe online. So if they're a certain age and you want them only to have access to certain things, you can do that and it's not difficult to set up. So just don't panic and have a look at that. And then the second thing I would also say on top of that is age-appropriate supervision. So if you are in your house or in a domestic setting, if you, or even if you, they're going to school or whatever, if your child has got an internet-enabled device with a tablet, phone, laptop, with a camera on, you need to know what they're doing. And obviously, you know your child yourself. So, the supervision you need to give a, te- a 10-year-old is not the same as a 17-year-old. Age-appropriate supervision. And then finally, just ensure that your children understand that they shouldn't be on websites if they're under 13 and you need to supervise that in some way. I mean, I was speaking to a government minister in the UK recently and she said, you know, this rise in seven to ten-year-olds, she said, is it as simple as children should not be in their bedrooms online on their own when they're age seven? And I said, yes, it is that simple (laughs) It is that simple. If you're seven Mm. years old, you don't need to be in your bedroom online on the internet. But maybe if Mm. you're 15, you do. Just a sensible approach to it. But don't, Mm -hmm. don't get panicky and don't get scared about it because there are lots of ways to build your children's resilience and to build your own and to find ways together to keep yourself safe online. Yes, I love all those things. Okay, perfect.
0: So what if somebody listening wa- listening wants to get involved with the Internet Watch Foundation and what you do? How can we help support you?
1: Well, it's re- that's very nice. And uh, we always want people to support us. Obviously, because we're dealing with criminal content, we have all sorts of security checks and balances. So we don't have volunteers work for us. But what I would say is, You, where you can support us, the same way as you can support Netmec in the states, is actually to develop a zero tolerance approach to child sexual abuse. It is a crime, it is a crime to look at, it's not a victimless crime. And everybody needs to, you know, know that it's wrong to look at this content and to do everything they can to make sure that you know they don't look at it in terms of parents and mums and all that side you know, do what I say, look, look, look for the safety settings. You know, you can go on, we're also part of the UK Safer Internet Centre, and we have loads of resources to keep people safe. You can just look that up on the internet. There are lots of US resources, you know, don't bury your head in the sand. You know, the internet is an exciting place, but it's also one where children need to be supervised. Absolutely. Is there any
0: specific way or, or maybe an app? I know there's certain phones, certain apps now that are allow you to over time give your child more and more responsibilities with a phone. Like, for example, when they're age 12 or 13, you kind of introduce this phone. It's more of a dummy phone at that point. There's no ability to have any social media and things like that. But then you can kind of gradually give them more and more responsibilities as they get older and you're able to track that within your own phone, kind of how they're using it and what apps they're using? Is there anything that you have that you maybe used personally or that you
1: would suggest for parents that have worked well? In terms of which device children should have, I mean, Google have Google family friendly apps, which can help you monitor your children's activity, what they're doing. That's just one example. So a number of them do, but I, I wouldn't have any particular recommendations in terms of a specific device. I don't know, I don't know how it works in the in the States in but it used to be that when you went to secondary school, which is high school in mm-hmm. the UK, you got your phone, mm-hmm. which is your eleven. Uh, oh, okay. And that that used to be kind of quite a good rule of thumb. But I, you know, clearly that's just been blown out of the water because children are having phones at five and six now. And I guess if it's sort of more sophisticated, the phone, the more ability they have to access all these different platforms. So so it just depends on what you get. I mean, I don't, I don't really think a five-year-old needs an iPhone, but you know, that's... Uh...
0: <laughs> I mean, oh God. I mean, I haven't seen this within my own community. I think the roughly the age is about 12, which... Is great just for a phone. I mean, this is a this is a plain old phone. Of course, you're going to have some kids that do have the ability to do more than that, right? That's always going to be the case. But as far as just a phone that can call parents and such, I I have my experience has been roughly age 12, which I'm thankful. I, I've talked to many other people that are like, I don't know. Just depending on where you are, it can vary so differently. And I think from the parents I have talked to, I. Their response is always, "Well, it's extremely stressful, and and my child feels left out, and I don't want them to feel left out, yeah. so I gave them a phone." <laughs> and yeah, it's. I do think though that there people are doing the work and and talking about the hard things, and I do think that will make a difference. And even just conversations like the conversation I'm having with you today, I think are they're just going to make people think think again about giving their kids a phone and especially early on
1: absolutely um, and i just think you know internet safety is is just part of parenting now in the same way as any any type of safety whether it's say it's a road safety or so the things you just wouldn't we always say you just wouldn't you wouldn't let your 10 year old child go go and do certain things so why would you let them out on the internet on their own you know so just a sort of sensible approach to this
0: hmm Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything that we didn't cover within the episode that you wanted to touch on? No, I don't think so. No, if you're
1: happy, you've okay, got perfect. what you need.
0: Yeah. So the last two questions I have for you are questions that don't have anything to do mm-hmm. with the topic today. So the first question is, if you could give mothers one piece of advice, what would it be?
1: Talk to your kids. I mean, Really talk to your kids. I'm really proud of the fact that I've got a a great relationship with my two grown-up children and they're like friends of mine. They're really good friends of mine and that's because we've always talked to them. We've we've not hidden away from talking about the difficult stuff as well. So have the courage to talk to your kids but also trust them as well. So it's Mm -hmm. a mutual respect situation.
0: Mm. do you have any advice for those that might be in those preteen teen years where their kids won't talk to them or you ask them all the questions but their answer is always I don't care mom or whatever it is and they go up to their room is there anything that you could could say as far as you know what you could try to try to get them to to, to talk with you and open up
1: well I think it, it, it's really difficult, you know, when your kids are in those teenage years. And, mm-hmm. and I think ultimately being there and being a good example to them and being available to talk to them and listen to them is really important. But mm-hmm. I appreciate it's, it can be very difficult at times. I, I remember <laughs> my son in his grunt stage, which I didn't really have a conversation with him for a, f- a couple of years. But I think mm-hmm. just sort of being there and being open. And being available is incredibly important.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and it's comforting to hear from someone who's on the other side of it saying it can be normal for them not to talk to you for a couple of years, but they come back around. (laughs) All right. So the last question I have for you is if you could make one meal for your family that everyone would eat. What would it be? That's relatively quick and easy. It has to be something that you can make in under 30 minutes.
1: Oh, okay. So we are big, big foodies in my family. So we're constantly cooking. So if I could make one meal, it'd probably be like a sort of chicken peanut stir fry. Hmm.
0: Oh, that sounds really good. Is it something that you just make off the top of your head? Or no, you no, we a do
1: specific? we will we will we're always trying different recipes. I'm currently mm-hmm. Very into uh, a chef called uh, who writes books called Ottolenghi, so I'm cooking mm-hmm. lots of his stuff. And we were all we're always looking for new things to cook. And in fact, one of the things I've done with my kids who are now grown up is that for the last year we've been working on a family cookbook. So uh, mainly just for ourselves. So we've put down all our favorite recipes and all the kind of when the kids come home and they say, mom, will you cook this or cook that? They're all in the cookbook. So we keep adding to it and uh, it's becoming a bit of a sort of sort of a family thing to just keep adding to it.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. And something really cool that you can pass down through Through generations. Yeah, that's lovely. All right. Well, thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to us about this, Susie. I really, really appreciate your time. Well, no, it's been an absolute
1: pleasure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity.
0: Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun.